Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So uh, we're very, very, very excited to be talking today about what's currently going on uh, in Palestine, um, in Israel. And as we all know, a ceasefire is supposedly tentatively in place. Now, why are we doing the show? This is why. Episodically, over the last few years, the plight of the Palestinian people is raised. It is discussed in mainstream circles. Uh it is discussed to some degree on broadcast outlets, in newspaper outlets. And then when a bout of violence subsides, the Palestinian people suddenly disappear again. They vanish. We don't have discussions about the plight of the Palestinian people living under occupation or indeed as Human Rights Watch, perhaps the most mainstream international human rights organization have put it, apartheid. So what we're going to do today is talk to two very, very courageous Israelis, uh, one of whom is from Betzalem, which is a human rights organization in Israel, extremely courageous human rights organization. It is not easy uh, to be an Israeli human rights champion of the Palestinian people, and it's become harder and harder and harder. So we're very honored to have people who show such courage and dedication and determination against huge odds and, and facing terrible consequences, often personally, for the work that they do. And we're also joined uh, from New York by Abraham Gutman, who was an Israeli refusenik. That's someone who did not, uh, on grounds of conscience, participate, uh, join the Israel Defense Forces because of their objection uh, to the occupation. Now, we've seen some horrific scenes over the last few weeks. We've seen... Uh, a huge loss of life. And we know, of course, all loss of life is terrible, including the loss of Israeli lives. What we see from the death, the statistics, the death statistics, is what underlines what is often called an asymmetrical conflict. That is where one side vastly outnumbers and strength the other. But calling this a conflict itself is inaccurate because one side is a military superpower armed and supported by the West, and the other is an occupied people who are not a military superpower armed and backed by the West. And we can see that in the horrific disparity in deaths. Huge numbers of Palestinians have died, including devastatingly many, many children. What we're doing today is talking about what's happened over the last couple of weeks, but we're talking in more depth about the nature of the occupation, about now that word, which is becoming increasingly mainstream discussing what's happening in the occupied territories, which is apartheid. And what next? Is there any hope? Last week, we spoke to two very courageous Palestinian activists, one in occupied Jerusalem, the other an 18-year-old girl in the Gaza Strip. Today, we're talking to two Israeli uh, 
voices, as I've said, very courageous voices who have so much to say and from whom we're going to learn a lot. Okay, that's enough of me. We're going to go straight to our fantastic guest. And we're going to start with Sarit Mikhaili from the Israeli human rights organization, Betzalem. Sarit, it's such an honor to have you with us. Well, it's um, a pleasure to be on with you as well, Owen. How are you doing? Very well, very well, and and I hope I hope you're doing well. Can I just check you're 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 in Gaza? Is that right? You're no, no, no. In... I'm in in the West Bank, in the northern West Bank. Um, as an Israeli, I'm actually prohibited from entering Gaza, and I've never been able to enter it uh, by my own government. Obviously, now also by the de facto government of Gaza. Uh, mm-hmm. I was uh, in the northern West Bank this morning, out in the field. Um, in an area east, northeast of Ramallah that is uh, often the, the site of settler attacks where settlers harass Palestinian shepherds. So they're kind of with some activists um, and now just in, kind of like in the, in the um, Nablus area. So firstly, many of the people watching or listening on the podcast will have heard of Betzalem, but some won't have done. So can you just explain who Betzalem are and what work okay. you do? Yeah. So B'Tselem is an Israeli human rights organization that's been around since 1989. That's the kind of first intifada, first Palestinian uprising. It was established by a group of Israelis who reached the conclusion that there was a need at the time, we're talking about over 30 years ago, um, for truthful, accurate information about human rights violations by the Israeli authorities uh, under the occupation. Um, And that uh, obviously was stemming from our basic uh, um, uh, belief assessment uh, position that Israel is violating human rights, that the occupation and that uh, Israel's actions within it violate the rights of Palestinians and uh, uh, violate Israel's obligations under international law. Uh, At first, uh, I think the, the notion behind the organization was primarily that information is the basis for action. That if only Israelis knew what was being done in our name to Palestinians in the occupied territories, this will spur them on to act to end the occupation. You know, fast forward 30 some years later, clearly the occupation has not ended. On the contrary, the occupation is uh, in fact um, more entrenched than ever. We, B'Tselem, not only Human Rights Watch, but B'Tselem views the situation now, not only in the West Bank, but under all um, the areas controlled by Israel. So basically in the entire region between the River Jordan and the Mediterranean Sea as the situation of apartheid. Um, And therefore, as far as B'Tselem is concerned, uh, um, clearly this information in and of itself is not enough. It's still the basis of our work. We still provide uh, accurate, a, a timely, confirmed info about what's going on, but we also do much more advocacy primarily with the international community in terms of advocacy and with Israelis, so the Israeli public, to try and lead to international action that will end Israel's uh, occupation and apartheid regime. Um, as an Israeli organization, uh, even though, and this might kind of like refer to some things we can talk about later, we don't see any way now that the Israeli government is going to um, accept any end of the current status quo, which is that Israel controls all areas uh, and uses its control to promote its own interests. Um, And therefore, even though we are extremely active with the Israeli public and we do a lot of work to try and uh, convey this the reality on the ground uh, of Palestinians living under occupation and also our messages about the occupation to Israelis, um, we don't view this as something that could really lead 
uh, to actual meaningful change. So this is kind of the work that Pacenum does. Um, you know, you described it earlier. Certainly, we're not exactly the most popular organization in Israeli public life uh, currently. Um, but I also think it's very important to remember that we do represent, not in a kind of like political way, i.e. we're not, uh, we don't have a, um, any kind of constituency that has elected us. We are self-appointed. But we, I think we do represent a large number of Israelis, both Jews and Arabs, who care about human rights, who want to end this reality. Um, and we're certainly not, not a majority and we're not, you know, we're a relatively small minority in our own society, uh, but we do exist here and we try to make our voices heard. But before I ask just, you know, in depth, about your work and what's happening on the ground. I mean, you know, again, I, I have friends who 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 went to Israel and and proudly supported Betzalem, but it's not easy, yeah. is it? And so I'm just interested before I ask you, what, how hard is it to be someone like yourself and your 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 colleagues to be able to do the work you do? What kind of pressures do you come under? Well, well I think it's a quite a, a mixed reality. I would say that. First of all, I have to clarify that if I look at what my Palestinian colleagues go through, uh, my Palestinian colleagues who are either Israeli citizens or residents of the West Bank and certainly residents of Gaza, the hell they had to go through the last couple of weeks and their reality, which is one of zero protection um, from, you know, anyone from the Israeli occupation, from their own uh, government. Um, I count myself extremely fortunate in that I have a lot of options. I have a, you know, um, I have quite a wide scope to say what I think, to express my positions, and, and B'Tselem has quite a wide scope of operations. Um, and we do enjoy a lot more freedom of speech and freedom of association than many other uh, human rights defenders um, in our you know, region and in the world. However, that is certainly not the only part of the, you know, the only picture. The, the um, government of Israel and various you know, government affiliated organizations are engaged in extreme campaigning and smear uh, uh, campaigning against human rights organizations or activists who are opposed to this, uh, you know, to the status quo. Um, so we, certainly can speak our minds. That's not necessarily uh, to say that anyone is actually listening to us, but very, because very often these smear tactics are quite effective in getting Israelis to turn off. Um, the Israeli authorities have also in recent years uh, uh, worked to legislate against us. Uh, primarily the legislation has led to various bureaucratic hindrances to our work, right? To um, kind of like a lot of a lot more hassle to do our, our work under this ongoing incitement against us. Uh, many Israelis have been led to uh, think that human rights organizations are the cause of... Oh, hold on. ...their troubles, uh, that we without you. people actually talking about this reality... Mm -hmm. Oh, sorry, we lost you slightly there, but carry on. So a lot of Israelis think that without... Yeah. So, I mean, I think the sad thing is that on some levels, many Israelis think that without people holding up this mirror, right, without people actually reporting and discussing what's going on on the ground, is many of the things that they experience as a kind of like bad image or bad PR for Israel wouldn't exist. And this is absolutely absurd, of course, because the problem isn't the conduit, right? 
these Israeli human rights groups or international groups or the media. The problem is the reality. The problem is Israeli government policy, uh, the policy of you know, uh, settlement expansion and of the policy that makes Palestinians uh, have no actual protection, no account there's no accountability for harm against them. Um, and this is the problem. This is what people are seeing around the world. But I think that, according, you know, the Israeli government and many kind of like these self-proclaimed guardians of, uh, you know, Israeli morality and, and etc., uh, who attack human rights groups, um, would like to blame the messenger. Obviously, I think it's uh, it's been quite effective, but it's also been quite uh, effective in in galvanizing us and in helping us. Um, as a community of human rights organizations, not just B'Tselem, my organization, but a strong, very, uh, you know, certainly not a massive, but a very committed community of people, both Israeli and Palestinians, Jews and Arabs, who are working together uh, to, to end this reality, to change this reality. Uh, and I think that if I'm thinking, you know, this kind of recent conflict um, in Gaza, and I certainly take uh, you know, clearly the comment that this is not really a conflict. It's absolutely not, uh, even in any way. Um, it reminds me of, uh, unfortunately, the previous conflicts I've, I've had to, um, or the previous rounds of hostilities that I've had to uh, deal with in my job at B'Tselem, but it also reminds me of all of the attacks that followed, the attacks against human rights activists and Certainly the first one that was really the strongest was following uh, the first uh, large-scale Israeli operation in Gaza, CAST-led, which um, led to the Goldstone Commission report and then following that to a massive uh, attack inside Israel against human rights activists. Uh, and, you know, we've learned a lot since then. And I think we're, we're very... Um, uh, we've unfortunately had to deal with so many of these uh, um, public attacks uh, and some, you know, some of my colleagues also face individual harassment. Personally, I feel like I've not ha had to deal with a lot of that. Um, but we are extremely united and we're very unapologetic about the work we do, both inside Israel and abroad. So when I speak to Israelis, I tell them, uh, and I, I, I say it very openly, that I also speak internationally uh, and our uh, director has been to the United Nations Security Council to call for an end to the occupation, for the international community to do this, to take action. Uh, and we repeat this call again and again. As I said, naturally, um, and I think it's very understandable for people uh, of any country not to be happy uh, when someone holds up a mirror to them that shows a very, very negative uh, image. But certainly I, uh, I feel like, you know, as an Israeli, I think it's not only um, my right to speak my mind, to try and uh, speak the truth and and report it. Uh, it's also my duty as an Israeli to speak to both Israelis and internationals and ask them um, to intervene, to take action, to end this reality. So, Sarit, um, just before the recent horrendous events, Human Rights Watch, which is an extremely mainstream international organization, um, they published a report which described the presence of apartheid. Yeah. And that's a word which people across the West obviously are very familiar with. Um, it should be noted, of course, for a long time, actually, South Africa was an ally of the West. And, uh, and the, of Israel. And of Israel, of course. Yes. And actually, there was a, you know, a, a lot of uh, the, the way history is sometimes rewritten. It was, you know, that people were always fighting against apartheid. And actually, it was a controversial thing to do for a long time. And people were very brave in doing so. 
Now, obviously, supporters of the Israeli government and of the occupation were very angry about that description. So just tell us, based on your work, what are the compar- why is that description, apartheid, so apt? What actually is on the ground to justify using that word? So I think it's very clear, and I obviously I don't speak on behalf of Human Rights Watch, but I do speak on behalf of Bezalem that made that specific pronouncement in a much shorter uh, uh, report. We, we issued a, a position paper about the entire Israeli con- regime between the river and the sea and Bezalem, and it, it's not a, a legal document, right? We deliberately set out not to write uh, a legal analysis, but a factual and moral analysis, um, looking at the reality between uh, the, the river and the sea in which uh, two peoples uh, exist, Israelis and Palestinians, uh, pretty much in terms of the numbers, there's a parity between the numbers of Israelis and Palestinians. But, uh, and we show very clearly in our uh, position paper how uh, on every level Israel uh, has enacted a regime of Jewish supremacy. Uh, this means that myself, as an, a Jewish Israeli, I enjoy um, all the rights that uh, a, you know, a, a citizen in a democracy is entitled to, um, and that through a whole, uh, um, uh, you know, through many years of uh, policies and practices, uh, culminating obviously in the nation-state law that was um, legislated in Israel and has uh, uh, created. Uh, you know, has established uh, Jewish supremacy as an actual uh, uh, principle, a constitutional principle uh, of Israel through, as I said, the Israeli government through policies and practices over the years has created a situation where Palestinians are fragmented between many different areas in Israel proper, the West Bank, Gaza, um, East Jerusalem, and each and every one of those Palestinians is uh, receives specific and lesser rights and has access to lesser rights than any Jewish Israeli. Um, and Israel has utilized its uh, control over all Palestinians. I'm also talking about the Gaza Strip control from outside um, to uh, prioritize its own uh, in, interests and certainly to take over land and uh, and we discussed this whole issue of land takeover uh, quite uh, widely in our position paper now we also state and this i think is important that we're not saying we're not using the word apartheid as a, a clear and um kind of historical analogy that is absolutely accurate to apartheid south africa certainly there are certain aspects of grand apartheid and certain aspects of petty apartheid that apply and that are quite uh, prominent here. But the utilization of the term apartheid refers to a legal and international, uh, internationally recognized and emerging notion uh, that uh, that uh, doesn't place apartheid only in the historical um, context of South Africa. And I think my understanding and from all of the everything I've read and the briefings I heard from Human Rights Watch, they've been trying to do the same thing. Apartheid is also a recognized crime these days. Um, and um, Human Rights Watch, uh, I'm, I'm not saying that this is exactly identical to what we saw in South Africa, but that this is a violation of international law and reaches the level uh, of, of uh, an international crime that has you know, been described and it was also dealt with uh, today by the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court has opened an investigation into the situation in Palestine. Uh, it deals with 
broadly with two issues, right? The issue of uh, the conduct of hostilities and the issue of Israeli settlements. Um, and these um, uh, are recognized international crimes and violations of international uh, law. Just two so other questions. Explains the kind of like that it's not an absolute historical analogy, but certainly it refers to uh, abs to to utterly uh, unacceptable crimes. Absolutely. Um, just two more questions. I know you're out, as you say, out in the field in the West Bank. Um, now we all know the Israeli, the official Israeli narrative, which is Hamas is a terrorist organization. Israel is defending itself from attack. Um, and this is a conflict in which Israel is exercising its right to self-defense. And that's the official Israeli state narrative about what recently happened. What's Betzalem's take on what actually happened and the consequences for Palestinian civilians? So first of all, I think it's important to say that this is a straw man argument because no one is, well, no one barring the most uh, unacceptable uh, positions internationally is saying that Israel doesn't have a right to defend itself. There's a big difference between saying that Israel has a right to defend itself and saying that the, the price, the cost has to be about 250 people, including 66 children killed in Gaza in two weeks, uh, dozens of high rise uh, buildings uh, and tens of thousands of people losing their uh, their homes. So, so high rise buildings brought down, um, um, bombings, uh, 24 seven, uh, hundreds of severely injured people and um, an emerging COVID crisis inside the Gaza Strip because there's been basically this entire two weeks has been a super spreader event. Um, this this does not. So B'Tselem would initially, first of all, say that when uh, when this is uh, described as the only option for uh, defending Israeli uh, security, we would be uh, we would question this. Cert secondly, we've written and we are already in the process of researching the specific cases uh, that we've seen and specific incidents we've seen over the past uh, two weeks in Gaza. But Ebetelem described again and again how um, the large numbers of fatalities and civilian fatalities and the vast damage uh, to uh, infrastructure and to property in Gaza is the result of uh, specific decisions, and those are political decisions about the, the fire uh, uh, the, or the, the open fire policy. So people are being killed and civilians are being killed because of political decisions about, for example, bombing the uh, homes without giving prior warning or uh, those uh, towers that have been destroyed were destroyed because Israeli politicians, decision makers, and also military uh, uh, of high-ranking officers and legal advisors reached the conclusion that this is acceptable, right? That this is a reasonable application of international humanitarian law, of the laws of war. And we show in previous reports and in kind of like a few emerging um, um, reports that we've already issued, how uh, this analysis completely empties uh, these laws of any kind of purpose and the, or any of any kind of content when the purpose of international humanitarian law is to defend and protect civilians. So we would certainly challenge the claim that this is, um, you know, that, that this is an acceptable uh, um, re a way for Israel 
to defend itself. Certainly, we've also denounced Palestinian rocket attacks at Israeli civilians inside Israel. The ICC, by the way, the International Criminal Court, is also investigating the conduct of Hamas and its own uh, war crimes that it's perpetrating. Um, but I also think that when we step back aside, you know, it's always um, um, it's much easier to look at the two, the last two weeks of hostilities, but why not uh, look at the entire context of what is actually going on in Gaza? Um, you know, 14 years of Israeli blockade that has devastated the Gaza Strip. And this is on the, you know, following uh, dozens of years of direct Israeli occupation and de-development of Gaza that, that have caused this, uh, um, the Gaza Strip to be what it is. Um, we're looking at an Israeli policy now pretty kind of openly declared of uh, dividing and fragmenting uh, and weakening the Palestinian Authority uh, and actually bolstering Hamas uh, when it suits Israel, um, allowing uh, funding to come in uh, to the Gaza Strip. And also, if again, if we set, uh, step back even, uh, even kind of further and look at the entire area, um, the apartheid regime that has created a situation where these kinds of um, rounds of hostilities where Israel views, uh, you know, the entire thing as anything as something that has does only has a, a military uh, a solution, which is obviously the opposite of what we would argue. There is no military solution to this situation, um, but this uh, you know this kind of apartheid regime that is establishing uh, um, ongoing rounds of conflict, uh, ongoing rounds of hostilities, which primarily harm Palestinians to a you know dev in a devastating way but also harm Israelis. And I should also mention that in the last two weeks, we've seen an, an awful deterioration of the situation inside Israel when it comes to the relationships between Palestinian and Israeli citizens or Palestinian and Jewish citizens of Israel. Um, and I think when, you know, when the entire picture uh, um, is looked at, so the, the entire, I think the Bezalem's um, analysis uh, which is now a much more broad and much more kind of like holistic analysis of the entire area and the entire regime allows us to um, look at re the reality in a very open and frank way and to describe it also in a much more accurate uh, and I think truthful way, but then also to demand uh, holistic solutions to this problem. Uh, I certainly think that even now in Israel, and this is absolutely uh, absurd and, and, and you know, tragic and shocking, Israeli commentators who certainly do not agree with anything I would say, they are themselves talking about the next round that is bound to uh, occur at some point as long as this issue isn't addressed. So I think um, this really would be the essential um, uh, unfortunate and terrible prediction that as long as the situation is allowed to continue in this way, the next, um, you know, explosion, the next round is only a matter of time. Now, I should also add to this picture the provocative uh, actions of the Israeli government in East Jerusalem, the intention to remove Palestinians from their homes in Sheikh Jarrah. Now, another neighborhood of East Jerusalem is, uh, is uh, facing similar and even more uh, severe uh, actions. Uh, it's called Silwan and dozens of Palestinian families are facing uh, legal, uh, ch uh, legal uh, kind of like uh, uh, actions by Israeli settlers 
supported by the state and certainly um, working with you know, all arms, all branches of the government to remove them from their homes. This is in Silwan in East Jerusalem. So all of these actions that are, uh, that are taking a place that are guided, that are assisted by the Israeli authorities um, and that have contributed, and I'm not even talking about the, the kind of provocative uh, actions of the Israeli uh, uh, police in the Al-Aqsa Mosque, um, need to also be viewed in order for us to really understand and begin to offer solutions to what we see around us, to this horrific uh, situation that we see around us, in order to not be in the same spot exactly in three, four, five years uh, down, you know, down the line. Just finally then, before, before I let you go, um, I mean, just firstly, what do you say when Israel says they have precision guided weapons, for example, uh, to avoid killing civilians? What's your response to that? But the, the final point is, I suppose, uh, a desperate plea for some optimism, if possible, um, because it's very easy to look at this situation and think what will happen now is Palestine will slip down the agenda. We do have a global, of course, the, the biggest global emergency since World War II. People will stop talking about the Palestinian uh, cause. Um, the settlements will continue to expand. Uh, within Israel itself, it will become ever more a militarized society with civil society squeezed. The siege of Gaza will continue. The right to national self-determination for the Palestinian people will just slip away and the United States, whoever is president, will continue to support and arm Israel, whoever happens to be in the government and whatever their policy is towards the Palestinian people. And you'd look at that and think there's no hope. And the campaigning work of people like yourself, as courageous as it is, is up against this absolute formidable, uh, powerful um, force. So that's a bleak summary but is, is there any possible hope for a just and lasting peace which provides national self-determination for the Palestinian people and a secure uh, peace for Jews and Arabs alike? Well, Owen, so basically you've just described my list of nightmares, barring one. I could add to, to this you know, litany of, of horrors. Also climate change and the way it's going to affect our region and the way that uh, us, we as Israelis have uh, managed to mitigate and will probably continue to manage to mitigate some of the worst uh, impacts of climate change through our control of Palestinians. Just to add, to give one example uh, to illustrate this, um, you know, there's an endemic water shortage in our entire area and this is expected to become worse and deepen as a result of, of climate change. Uh, Israelis ha have uh, more access to water. We, uh, in the, in, you know, the way we divide uh, and uh, water between ourselves and Palestinians is absolutely unfair. Uh, the shared water resources go primarily to Israelis and Palestinians have an even worse water shortage. And, and this is in the West Bank. When you talk about Gaza and Gaza's uh, water issues, the last two weeks have been absolutely awful because, uh, uh, for example, a as far as I understand it, the desalination plant has been uh, affected as well. Um, but the water in Gaza is undrinkable and has not been uh, worthy of you know, drinking for many years, as is the entire Gaza Strip. There's, you know, there's this kind of like, it's become a cliche now, uh, a UN uh, report from 10 years ago saying that Gaza um, in 2020 will not be worthy of human habitation. Now, 2020 has long passed. Gaza isn't worthy of human habitations, but human live there, right? So they do live there. 
it's not you know they they live in absolutely horrific and unfathomable uh, conditions um i you know it's unbelievable and this seems to be uh, you know just deteriorating all the time so having said all of this um i'll um maybe give you a few a list of a few of the things that i find currently uh, optimistic about the situation that we are in uh, but first i should also answer the question about israel's guided missiles so first of all i think when you look at 66 children killed in gaza over the past two weeks this uh, you know, this is, the burden of proof is on Israel to prove that it has actually operated in a, a adherence to the rules of a international humanitarian law. And the, these, the suspicions that arise from this large number of fatalities of children, women, men who are not involved in, in the hostilities, uh, at the very least uh, require like a very, very serious investigation that we know is not going to happen under the Israeli system because we've researched and we've experienced the Israeli uh, investigative system and we have declared uh, already in the past that it functions as a whitewash mechanism, not as a real a mechanism to ascertain the truth uh, to, uh, of these kinds of, of, of Israel's military conduct. Also, additionally, there are already emerging, uh, um, there's already uh, evidence and information emerging that calls all of this, all of these claims into great doubt. For example, uh, when it comes to the, uh, the media tower that Israel blew up, uh, that Israel uh, 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 damaged the Al Jazeera tower, Secretary of State Blinken said he did not see any evidence convincing him that that was a, uh, you know, an, um, a military target and a, uh, an accepted military uh, objective. Uh, unfortunately, I really do not see any way that Israel will conduct uh, actual uh, transparent uh, investigations into not only the specific conduct of individual soldiers, pilots, etc., but into the, the decision makers, into the uh, military lawyers who approve these strikes. This is not uh, ever going to happen and it's um you know a kind of like charade a, a masquerade that is um being performed by uh, israel in order to pretend that there is some sort of mechanism of accountability uh, additionally i think our past research into uh, for example operation uh, protective edge uh, showed i think quite conclusively how simply saying that you're taking all feasible precautions to avoid harming civilians and yet again civilians are being harmed again and again and again from those policies that you've uh, decided on it's all you know things that are that are uh, um, uh, dictated from above those decisions are not made by individual soldiers or individual personnel uh, these are you know, political or very very high ranking uh, level uh, high level decisions um, it, the, the argument is not uh, convincing when the argument is made and yet uh, civilians are being killed again and again and this continues and it has continued from the beginning uh, of um, of the the current uh, uh, round uh, and for for its entire uh, for its entirety and, and one final thing is now uh, information has emerged inside israel and has been reported in the media that in fact some of the um, you know the targets selected uh, were were 
kind of primarily for, for show, for PR purposes, in order to threaten Hamas, in order to uh, strike fear into Hamas, in order to teach them a lesson. Uh, these are, you know, this is, has slowly been discussed in, in the Israeli media. And again, I think, um, you know, the, the, um, the onus of proof now is on, on Israel. Yeah, I think it's very unlikely to be able to, or I think it's very unlikely that the Israeli authorities will be willing to uh, uh, provide any actual convincing evidence. Um, and in, we would reject uh, uh, the legal analysis also that comes with it. Now, in terms of maybe just to finish uh, on a positive note, I can give you a few li a list of things that have, I've, uh, I've tried to cling to in the last two weeks to, um, you know, to make myself uh, kind of like a little bit uh, stronger. Um, and I'm very glad you said uh, you described um, the uh, conversations you've had with Palestinian activists in the previous, uh, in the previous um, program, Owen, because for me, that is actually the essential thing, that it seems like in the West and in the international media and on social media, Palestinian voices are being heard much more than they have ever been heard in the past. This is my, at least my personal experience. Of course, I'm an Israeli and I, um, I speak from my own perspective. Uh, but one of the things that have really been encouraging for me is to see throughout uh, the world, certainly in the, in the US, um, uh, Palestinians raising their voices much more, reporting from the field, talking from, you know, and, 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 and broadcasting what is happening in Gaza. And this, I think, is really one of the first times that this has been uh, on display so much. And, and, and listening to Palestinians and, uh, and, and listening to what they are going through and that what they have done, what they have had to endure for the last two weeks without some sort of like external kind of like... Um, uh, uh, resource like Israeli human rights organizations or the media, etc. Um, I also think that I've taken a lot of uh, encouragement from uh, the kind of very uh, strong uh, voices, primarily in the United States, um, talking about uh, the struggle against the occupation and against apartheid uh, here in our region, but uh, comparing it to the struggle for racial equality and justice in the US. And I think that listening to speeches by some uh, um, really inspiring members of Congress on, and, and, Sen and the Senate uh, has been uh, quite extraordinary and does uh, indicate a change, as, has, um, um, uh, as have some of the things I've heard from uh, the US Jewish community that is going through a change itself. It started in 2014 and even long beforehand, but those things take time, but they are quite optimistic. Inside Israel, there've been dozens and dozens of uh, protests and of uh, demonstrations that are joint between Jews and Arabs, uh, talking about not the you know, kind of discredited word of, uh, of uh, coexistence, it's no longer considered uh, the right term to use, but we're talking about partnership, right? About a, a joint, a shared future. And these demonstrations also um, are very inspiring and, um, you know, give one hope that there is a strong uh, group of uh, Israeli Jews and of Palestinian citizens of Israel who are not going to be, who refuse to be carried away, to be, uh, you know, sense feeling 
uh, it be enemies of one another. Um, and this has been quite uh, helpful, I think. It uh, kind of uh, really um, resists, I think, a lot of the, this official incitement that, have been, that has been extremely uh, um, uh, uh, strong in, in trying to get uh, Israelis to, to, um, to feel like the Palestinian citizens of Israel are enemies, are kind of like trying to, you know, uh, side with our enemies. And also speaking to Palestinian friends uh, uh, who finally, who, you know, several Palestinian friends have, have told me that they feel that this, first, this is the first time in, in a very long time that Palestinians around all, both, all sides of the Green Line and in the Palestinian diaspora have been um, working together and have been kind of like trying to struggle for a shared uh, um, future for, or for a shared uh, struggle. Those things have all been very, very encouraging uh, to me in the last couple of weeks. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Sorry, we really, really appreciate you joining us like this. We've also flushed up the betsalem.org slash donate page. Yep. Um, I, I presume that's okay for international donations. I know sometimes they're Absolutely. Rules. So it's www.bt, for those listening, BT, S-E-L-E-M, for mother, dot org, forward slash donate. Do support their courageous work if you can. Um, that point about Palestinian voice is very important. As I said, we had last week two fantastic Palestinian voices. We also have coming up more Palestinian voices, including Bashar Murad, who's a brilliant gay Palestinian singer who we're very lucky to be speaking to in the coming days. But we really appreciate that, Sari. It was so comprehensive, so detailed, and your courage and your insight really came through. And I've seen some of the comments. People were beyond appreciative of what you had to say. So we really appreciate it and your courageous work. And thank you for joining us yeah. at such short no, notice. Thank you all, of course. And I would also, of course, we really appreciate your donations and we need this funding. But the Betelem website also has a vast amount of information and we are going to be updating it probably on a daily basis from now, probably in the next few weeks with uh, ongoing information about the situation in Gaza and about uh, the emerging results of our inquiries into the Gaza hostility. So I encourage you all to go in there and read the material we upload. We're also obviously available on, on social media. So aside from donations, which we appreciate immensely, we would also really appreciate that you read um, and look, look at our videos and kind of like 
reach out to us and get in touch with us. And thank it, you it really that. is a brilliant resource. And, and articles I've written in the past, I relied on Betzalem's fantastic work, including what's on the website. So do go to Betzalem. Follow them on Twitter as well. Um, very, very important resource there as well. Thank you so much, Sarah. Stay safe out there and thank solidarity. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. So now we're going to go straight in to talk to our second guest, who we're really honoured to have, who is Abraham Gutman, who I think you're in New York, aren't you, Abraham? Let me just double check that. I'm in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. What am I like? Philly. Sorry. Do apologise. Um, Abraham, thank you so much for joining us. Big honour. So could you just talk a bit about your own story? Because you were born in Israel. That's right, isn't it? You were, you were, or Just tell me about your backstory and I suppose your politicisation. Sure. Uh, so thank you so much for having me oh, and um, so yeah I, I was born and raised in Israel I lived there um, you know um, throughout high school um, and, and after and I around 2004 son five uh, in you know high school middle school was um, getting more and more political getting more and more um, involved in, in in what I saw just you know injustice in and, and what I I, I seem to be um, just not didn't add up, you know. I, I one of the uh, a song that my father used to sing to us, like as a lullaby, had a reference to a place called Umlabis, um, and I remember him saying, "Is oh, this is today Petrtikva, but Umlabis, which is an Arabic name, doesn't exist anymore. So, so where did it go? Like, what happened?" And mm-hmm. um, so starting to ask these questions, starting to kind of notice what's going on around. There was a, 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 the Second Lebanon War at the time that also involved um, um, military action in Gaza. There was a big debate about whether or not settlers should leave Gaza or not before the blockade. Um, and really finding that a lot of the conventional, you know, Israeli left um, narrative or Israeli central narrative, I should say, didn't satisfy me that the system itself was problematic and it was not enough just to be a good actor inside the system. And, and that led me to decide to not join the IDF. There's a mandatory draft for everybody after high school when you're 18, three years for men, two years for women. And that was a, a, a tough decision. And just like Sully talked and, and, and that was brilliant, I, I want to center this around the fact that you know, the social sanctions I endured as an Israeli are not violations of my civil liberties, civil rights, freedom of transportation, freedom of um, of, of speech and, and, and livelihood and my ability to to, to, to imagine a future for me and for, for my children. And so um, I do want to center this around the fact that, you know, the the um, kind of sanction of speaking up is not is not equivalent to the sanction of just unfortunately being Palestinian between the river and the sea, depending on, on where, as it said, uh, the level of sanction kind of differs, but it's all terrible. Um, but I, I chose not to join it with uh, the army. It was a long, long process of, of conversations with family, with friends. In retrospect, then I was very angry. <laughs> I was, I felt very, you know, unheard and kind of, you know, feeling like I'm doing something righteous. And now I understand that a lot of people, mainly my father, um, were really worried about me, you know, it's hard to explain how much the army in Israel is a pipeline for social strata. That, you know, just like in the US, um, someone for years can wear their college alumni hat, right? To signal, oh, I went to Harvard, or I went to, you know, this place, or I went to that place. And this football team that they, um, the, the, their college football team is still something that is 
is is is important to them and something that you forever can situate someone in a conversation just asking, oh, where'd you go to college? And and actually you get a lot of information from the answer, right? You kind of have an idea of who you're talking to sometimes. The very much the same happens in Israel with the military. You know, there are um, companies that say, oh, we have a ton of people that come from this unit of intelligence because they're super smart. And like, you know, others, um, um, yeah, like there, there's just so much of that going on. Uh, so many of my kind of friends, colleagues, you know, in Israel at the time and found jobs through their former commander in the army. It's, it's the club. People, uh, people, you know, still tell kind of war stories, whether they're actual war stories or more like the boring, funny thing that happened in the base, you know? So it's really a big part of Israeli social life. And I think that what I understand now is that the main thing that people like my father were concerned about is the fact that if I don't participate, I will forever not be a part of the club that will forever uh, kind of chase me. Um, so there was a compromised position. <laughs> um, so basically to not join the military in Israel, there's generally two options. Um, one is to object, which is what you kind of imagine, like Vietnam style arrest, right? Like of you go to the day of your, um, of your uh, draft day and you just don't uh, agree to get on the bus. And then you go to jail for a week or two, they send you home, um, and then they tell you, okay, come back, you know, draft again. And it goes in circles and people spent months in jail for, 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 for make a political statement. And I admire them very, very deeply. One of the things that this gets is that usually it's covered, right? That there's media attention about the fact that there are people who don't serve and there's a tradition um, of um, groups of uh, 18-year-olds when they finish the, the senior year having a uh, writing letters such as that are called which means a uh, senior's letter, like the letter of seniors from high school, explaining why they won't serve. And that does get a lot of attention and it is, it is an important and inspiring thing. Somewhat the compromised position in my family was to go another route that to kind of reduce a little bit the social sanction. And I will ostensibly uh, get out on a, on a medical issue uh, of mental health that I, you know, um, um, discussing kind of, you know, my, my, my own anxiety and, you know, don't tell the Israeli army if they're listening, but maybe playing it up a little bit just to, you know, um, ju- just to actually uh, get out. And so I, 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 it's important to me to make that distinction. And, but still after that, you know, you're 18 in Israel, you're 19 in Israel, everybody sees you. I also look like the age, right. And people are like, Oh, so what do you do in the army? Oh, what? This is the middle of the day and you're not wearing a green uniform. Like, why are you here? Um, and, and it becomes a very isolating experience. And in Israel, just like people talk here about Dutch draft dodgers, uh, there it's like it's like uh, people who um, evaded responsibility is the term people use. Like you, you don't do your part. And so I kind of volunteered as a medic for two years in, in like the Israeli um, version of, of the Red Cross. Um, and um, yep, it, it's something that like continues to this day. To uh, by many, uh, it's funny because in you know in when I talk to you, when I talk to um, uh, Americans, when I talk to um, people outside of Israel, a lot of times uh, me being in Israel gives me kind of a um, positionality that allows me to speak with more authority about the cri- about the crisis, about the oppression of Israel, about um, the, the, the crimes of, uh, of apartheid that you all discussed before. Uh, but in Israel, a lot of times I don't get that position because I didn't do my part. So you didn't, you know, so who are you to talk? And then that's where you see veteran groups as being like, very effective internally. So 
I mean, we know throughout history, occupations, uh, forms of colonization, uh, corrupt the occupier or the colonizer. So if we look at British colonization, it always rested on the dehumanization of the, of the colonized. That was a prerequisite because if you see those who are being occupied or colonized as equal to your own people, then you, you know, one would not find that a tolerable or le- they were certainly less likely to find that a tolerable state of affairs. So I'm just wondering just about how that dehumanization works, how entrenched it is, how consequential it is within Israel. And also for those veterans, because I know, you know, there are veterans breaking the silence as an organization that organizes Israeli veterans, you know, you do get Israeli, those who, who do join and then see the impact of the occupation and the crimes of the occupation and of apartheid, and it has an impact on them. You know, what happens to those sorts of people? So I'm just quite interested in, the, in, in, in both how dehumanization works and the impact it has, which is very common in these forms of uh, regimes. And that, you know, what, what, how, what happens to those veterans who, who, who see the impact and, and, has, and then speak out? Yeah, so the 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 former the the Israeli army is, is a peculiar thing, you know. On one hand, it's one of the maybe only armies in the world that, by definition, you're always at war. You're always at the front line. On the other hand, you can be on the front line for four days a week, five days a week, and then go home to your you know to your parents' house on a twenty five minute bus ride, <laughs> depending on where you're serving. Which is just a bizarre to have such brutal militarization of, of another people on a, again we're talking about a size all the river to the sea um, is is about the size of new jersey maybe this is not saying much to, to your audience but it, we're talking about a very small territory so so the the separation between you know supposedly the front line and the separation and and then where it's home is miles away in terms of the type of freedom and world and you know reality that you live but at the same time it's it's really close and i i don't believe that that doesn't that, that you can see that you can experience that transition without kind of being desensitized to the fact that there's a door that you open there's a line that you cross and then it's okay but it's very very clear to you that you know this is not okay to you and the demonization comes in a lot of forms from from active propaganda um, that we see, you know, um, a lot of Israelis, uh, Netanyahu, I think in 2003 or 2004, uh, said at the time um, that, um, oh, you know, one day, like, we won't control the Palestinians. The actual threat to Israel as a Jewish state is is, is the demographic threat, right? It's the fact that um, um, the population growth of Palestinian citizens of Israel are higher than Jewish citizens of Israel. So eventually, like, it will be really hard to, to maintain a Jewish, a Jewish democracy. And what is that calling kind of kids demographic threat and kind of having that in kind of like, you know, the national zeitgeist that you, you grow up politically in, that can't not influence how you view another people, right? That, that there's no way, no, no, there's no amount of like homeless plates that you can share in Jaffa because, you know, um, and th- that won't percolate into your consciousness. Um, and, and you see this over and over and over again with, with, you know, infamously a few elections ago, Netanyahu said that the, um, the Arabs are, are, are going to, to vote in droves, kind of like in a swarm-like uh, uh, effect of 
be terrified. They're participating in democracy, right? So the logical conclusion, so to speak, is 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 that eventually their participation in democracy is a threat to you, and and that doesn't make sense because all people should participate in democracy. So maybe you know they're they're less people. And then there's another part of this that is sort of like an extra humanization, if that makes sense. And you know, a, a writer who I rather not reference to why give shout out, it wrote a, 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 a newsletter when, when the bombing in Gaza started. And she said that the death of Palestinian children is a tragedy, but it's an unavoidable burden of power for maintaining Zionism. So when you're essentially comparing, you know, throughout crisis, you talked in the beginning of the show about asymmetry in casualties. And there's a piece that I'm writing that will come out next week um, talking about asymmetry of even type of injury. You see, you know, news organization report in the same breath that there were 66 kids killed in Gaza, 2,000 injured, another 250-something uh, killed, uh, Palestinian killed, and then there were dozens of Israelis who had panic attacks. Hmm. And as someone who is in the mental health space, well, like, that's important, but Gaza has 2 million people in it. If we try to tally the, you know, the shock injuries of, of Gaza, that will be impossible, right? But but only one side of this spectrum of of, of, of this of, of this situation has the right to even have a shock injury, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and that is dehumanization. When an Israeli army says that, oh, you know, leveling high rises, we are the most humanitarian army in the world. We unlike Hamas, we give warning. Mm-hmm. We tell people that they can vacate their homes before. Mm-hmm. So. If you, the difference between, you know, kind of a human and, you know, an organism is that we extend beyond life, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not only about breathing. Mm-hmm. So when allowing someone to live in homelessness is charitable mm-hmm. because you didn't kill them, mm-hmm. I think that speaks volumes to the type of mindset that someone can parrot that online, uh, on the news, and you see the news commentator all the time. Look, they're saying we're doing this awful thing, but we warned them. Mm-hmm. So, and again, then comparing that kind of the, the 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 idea that there's a collective trauma in Israel, which there is, but let's acknowledge that kind of you know the, the reality of if if there's a type of injuries that an Israeli can suffer, there's a type of Israeli that no Palestinian Gaza can suffer, mm-hmm. and and then in terms of of the so, so yes, so I think I believe that the occupation corrupts us as a you know militaries are hyper masculine mm-hmm. and. Our, our, our hyper-militarized structures, their violent structures, there, there, there is um, um, hierarchical in ways that are, are very, in my opinion, uh, damaging uh, in terms of our psyche. And, and, and I don't believe that you don't take that home, you know, after. And I also don't believe that just like people talk about how, you know, universities liberalize people, I don't believe that armies don't do the opposite. Because being an 18-year-old kid with, a, um, a, you know, in the United States, you can't even vote. And, um, and you can't even drink alcohol, you can't vote, and you can't even drink alcohol, wearing a uniform and denying passes to a Palestinian that tries to go work um, at, through the checkpoint, uh, who is your father's age, mm-hmm. that's a power trip that no one should experience. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In, in terms of the, oh, sorry. No, go for it, Abraham, go, go for it. Go for oh, it. just in terms of, uh, I'll surely speak, uh, yeah, the, the, um, the uh, attacks on 
uh, folks in breaking the silence. These are a uh, veterans, a bit of a misnomer that I use because every almost every Israeli is a veteran. Of course. Um, but um, these are people who served in the military and broke the silence in what they saw. They lead tours in places like Hebron and 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 and, uh, and Nablus uh, to um, um, places that you can enter uh, to um, um, Israelis. Um, it's an extremely powerful voice where we need to be careful, including with me, and I really appreciate you and for having Palestinians before us, because usually the directionality is opposite. Mm-hmm. Usually I'm allowed to speak first because calling me an Israeli Jew and anti-Semite just doesn't land the same. Um, and then then people you know, graduate to having a Palestinian, which are the biggest authorities on their own experience and their own oppression mm-hmm. and their own liberation, by the way. So the... Um, um, the, the, the problem with, with me, in a sense, and the problem with the relationship back in the silence is it does feed to the respectability politics of who is allowed to speak. Mm-hmm. So these are voices that we need. I think we need people like me who didn't serve to talk about why. I think we need people who served and saw to share their experience. That's critical. Mm-hmm. But we need to be careful that it's all done through um, centering Palestinians and it's all done through um, uh, um without creating barrier to entry to criticize Israel. I'm allowed to criticize Israel because I served is a problem, but at the end of the day, the right-wing people who are driving the propaganda don't make those distinctions. And there was brutal harassment, including billboards with names of, of the, the Breaking the Sands leaders uh, chastising them as, as, as traitors. So they're extremely courageous people. And just finally, and then, but this is so fascinating. I'd, I'd ask you so many more questions, but I have to go and get vaccinated, funnily enough. So I have to, I have to leave in a few minutes, but uh, which I'm very excited about. Um, just finally, I'm, I'm just interested. This time around, it does seem different. Um, and I wonder why. I wonder if it's to do with Black Lives Matter and the impact BLM has had, uh, particularly in the last, I suppose, year or so, really, um, in the aftermath of the murder of George Floyd. But also, uh, you know, there is the rise of the US left. You have the so-called squad, people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilan Omar, uh, Jamal Jackson, people, you know, sorry, Jamal Bowman. You've got a, a new, you know, maybe that's part of it as well. Um, and do you think, finally, do you think things, this could be different and actually maybe Israel's overreached and the global tide is turning and Western governments will find themselves facing more pressure uh, in the way that South Africa ended up feeling more pressure, or um, their governments, Western governments, came under pressure to act on South Africa, which they did not do for many decades. That's a very hard question to answer quickly. Hey, sorry, I will do my there. best because <laughs> vaccination is important and good on you. And so the here is the kind of how I think about this. We need to be both happy about kind of the change in tide and also be more honest about it. And I, I don't mean to like throw a blanket on this conversation in a, or on the proposition. Mm-hmm. Most people started speaking after kids were killed. Condemning the death of kids shouldn't be a moral, like courageous moral act. That's, that's, that's really easy. Talking about the evictions in Sheikh Jarrah, the expulsions, which is... It, it's 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 ethnic cleansing East Jerusalem by politically motivated abuse of racist Israeli real estate law. That's what we should be talking about all the time because this is not new. 
there was just a Supreme Court hearing scheduled this time and police decided to, you know, crack down as much as possible, Israeli police, on protesters, which raised this to kind of international attention in some places. But you didn't see progressives, and most progressives, um, talk about this in the United States when it was still Sheikh Jarrah. You saw this when there were, you know, bombardment of Gaza, that, yeah, the asymmetry suddenly becomes so easy to capture without any political analysis. So we need people to be not afraid from political analysis. Calling for a ceasefire is not that hard. Mm-hmm. And, and, and unfortunately, it is in, when it comes to Israel for some reason. And I don't understand completely why, but like we, we have to push further. This is why it's important that you're having this conversation. I, I, I also think that we need to be honest about who is talking and who talked from the beginning. Because it was Rashida Tlaib, the, you know, one of the two first Muslim representatives youth representatives in Congress and a Palestinian that had to carry this mantle. It was Ilhan Omar, you know, former Somali refugee, the other half of the first Muslim and of the pair of the first Muslim female representative in the US Congress. It was Cory Bush, activist from Ferguson, where there was Palestinian activists. It was um, uh, Jamal Bowman. It was Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. There's a theme there. And one of the themes is that, you know, there are also people who are people of color who are deeply immersed in racial justice fights in the U.S., just like the anti-apartheid movement was. Mm-hmm. You see also that um, the same in media, the people who have carried the flag to talk about this have not been the usual hosts of, um, of like MSNBC, right? The, some of the most watched shows haven't mentioned Palestine a week into the crisis. Mm-hmm. You've seen that now we have people like Mehdi Hassan and Ayman Mukhadin who have platforms. And there's this big question of like, did people change their minds? Mm-hmm. Or if these people were in power or had a voice or have a platform 10 years ago, because we had 2008, 2009, a war in Gaza that would look very similar. Nothing changed by 2012, 2014, you know? So like, would they have said the same things? Maybe. Mm-hmm. But they were, they were blocked out of politics. They were blocked out of, um, um, out, of, uh, out of those platforms and media. They had to have someone have them as a guest. And then there would probably be another guest that says, well, I respectfully disagree. And so I think this is a lot of the fruits of, the, of, of organizing um, uh, of, the, of organizing on the ground and, and of, of pushing, whether in politics or in media, to have different voices. And you also see that with, with what Sally said about Palestinian voices in, in media as well, which, which I agree has been noticeable to me too. Um, and then I, I do think now is the question. This is the inflection point, right? So the question is not what happened last week. The question is what happens next week. Sheikh Jarrah still is under the threat of expulsion of, of, of families in Sheikh Jarrah are threat of expulsion for houses they lived in for 70 years after they became refugees. Mm-hmm. So are, are people going to pick up this fight? Mm-hmm. And whether groups like APAC, suddenly their endorsement, which Barack Obama saw, Clinton saw, um, becomes toxic. Mm-hmm. So you don't want that endorsement for politicians. You don't do the pilgrimage early to the APAC convention because, you know, you, you don't feel comfortable being a party that um, someone like, um, uh, his name is the case me, Trump lawyer, uh, Alan Dershowitz, um, okay. feels comfortable in, which he did until 2016. Mm-hmm. 
And so, so how do you become kind of that democratic party in the U.S.? And how does the left kind of continue to push not only on Medicare for all, not only on Black Lives Matter, but also on Palestine as a complete analysis, not only of what justice looks like, but also on what using funds, you know, for a just way. People always ask, how are you going to pay for it when someone, um, when someone raises a, a, a social policy? Well, got $4 billion for you sitting right here. Um, so if, if, if not because it's the right thing, just do it for the money, I guess. Abraham, we really, really appreciate you joining us like that. That was absolutely fantastic and so educational, so enlightening and so full of humanity, um, which this this conversation needs more of than ever. And to have to have that moral clarity when talking about oppression is a very important thing indeed. And you provided that in spades. So we really, really appreciate it. Uh, and thanks so much for joining. And everyone, please do follow Abraham Gutman on social media on twitter what was your handle again just quickly it's uh i can i'm at a b g u t m a n on twitter and and yeah i I have a piece about many of these themes in gaza and why we should keep talking about gaza coming this week at teen vogue and i would love to to share with your audience and i will share that on social media as well um but thank you so much abraham i i owe you i owe you one and i hope uh when i'm in not in new york in philly uh sometime in the future we can we can have a chat over a pint on the other side of this nightmare but cheers abraham really appreciate it thank you take care uh well i better be quick because i do actually now need to go down the road and get vaccinated uh will it be pfizer will it be moderna who knows very exciting very quickly just some quick admin um this book, We Can Do Better Than This, is coming out uh, very soon. Uh, it's about LGBTQ rights and the future of LGBTQ rights. I've written a chapter on mental health. It's got people like Ollie Alexander, who you might have seen in It's a Sin, brilliant singer. It's got Phil Apuku Gimme. She's amazing. Beth Ditto. So many people. So do get a copy of that. It's great. Uh, we've got loads and loads of brilliant interviews uh, coming up, if I do so, so myself. We've got, uh, as I said, Bashar Murad, who is a gay Palestinian singer. Very lucky to have him. We've got so many interviews coming up. Uh, those guests were amazing. I learned so much. It was so informative. I better run down the road now and get that needle in my arm. Uh, lots of love, everyone. And I will see you in the week and next Sunday at 12 o'clock. Free Palestine. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, do support us on patreon.com forward slash owenjones84. Help us decide who we talk to, what we talk about, the documentaries we do, uh, and also on the supporter function, uh, which you can see in the description. And leave us five stars and a review. It's just helps other people listen uh, and with that thank you so much speak soon imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. code buttery exclusions apply see site for details